Don't go to Isaiah. Turn to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. For some weeks we have been in the book of Job, and I love taking a whole look at the book of Job. In, in Bible study, there's several different approaches that are sometimes taken. Sometimes there's uh, the, the flyover. It's like flying over an area and looking at it from a high aerial view. There's other times when you swoop down in a little closer at different places and you look at the ground and you see the different areas. And then sometimes you land and you get your tools out and you dig in deep. We haven't reached that point. We haven't dug in deep to many of these passages, but we have taken more of an aerial view and occasionally swooped in to see what's taking place in the life of Job. The life of Job, I'm glad that God gives us this entire story. Very often with Bible characters, we focus in on just one scene from their life. We don't take a look at the whole of their experience with God. But I'm glad that God is not merely a God of just one scene. He is a God of our whole story. I'm glad that our entire experience, God is engaged in and God is a part of. Now, there are times where we specifically experience God maybe in a little more direct way than we do others. But in Job's life, we see how it started. I want to see how it ends. I want to see the ending of the story. Some people love um, depressing stories. I have not quite ever grasped that, but there are some pretty depressing stories. And it's interesting that sometimes in, in books and in movies, they feel pressured to force an ending on it because most people don't like depressing endings. Most people don't want to see the end of the story, and it's, it's sort of a, a bummer. Do we still say bummer? I don't know. That's more of a, more of a I don't know, 70s or 80s. I don't know how far back bummer goes, but y'all know what I'm talking about. It's a downer. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those depressing moments, and so we like a, a good ending. That's how God, his stories may have some deep valleys, but they always end in grace and glory. And whatever starts in our life, remember this biblical principle, whatever begins in grace will always end in glory. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that no matter where you are, what scene you are in in your life, it will end in glory? That's the case in the book of Job. In chapter 42, we come to the conclusion of this story. This is how it ends. God has just finished calling Job into account. He has asked him question after question. Job, where were you when I did this? How did I do this? Can you do this? Do you know this? What do you know? Job, what is your knowledge? And Job answered the Lord in verse 1 and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. That's a smart answer. Job says, here's what I do know. I know some things about you. And then he quotes what God said to him at the beginning of this who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. <laughs> have you ever uttered some things you didn't understand? Have you, ever experienced, have you ever encountered somebody that uttered things that they didn't understand? Now don't look at your husband or your wife. That's exactly what some of y'all did as soon as I said that. We, we laugh about that because most of us at some point in time have talked about things that we have absolutely no understanding about. And we know what that's like. That's what Job says. Job said, I have talked about things that I shouldn't have talked about because I did not understand. He said in the end of the verse 4, I will, uh, ver, that too wonderful for me, verse 3, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of you and declare you to me. This is what God has said to him. 
Job says in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's our key verse this morning. Wherefore, he says, I abhor myself. Now, in our day, the word abhor means to, to, to hate or to, uh, to look down, to skew, to look down on. But the word simply means to reject. Job is saying, I have demanded an account from God. I have demanded the opportunity to stand before God, and now I reject my case. I reject what I've been saying about God, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job is saying, look, <laughs> I spoke a little too quickly. My whole case that I thought I was going to bring against God, I reject that. I put that aside. It's like he's standing in a court of law, and he says, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to drop my case, Your Honor. Verse 7, God goes on to speak to his friends. God speaks to Eliphaz, the eldest of his three friends, and he says in verse 7, My wrath is kindled against thee and against your two friends. You'll remember that Elihu, back a few chapters ago, was angry and his wrath was kindled against the three friends. That was a small, in a small way, mirrored God's anger about their response to Job. And he says, you didn't answer rightly, you didn't answer correctly. The difference in what they have said is that when Job hears this back from God, he responds in the proper way. He rejects what he has said and he repents. But the three friends have heard the same response from God and they stand there and they do not repent. They simply say nothing. And God says, because of that, I want you to take some sacrifice and I want you to go to Job and I want you to offer that sacrifice. And God said, Job will pray for you. And God says, I will hear Job, I will listen to Job when he prays for you. And then he goes on down into verse 10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then something that we don't often notice, I really hadn't paid a great deal of attention to previously when we come to verse 11. We think about what God restores to Job. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. They bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, everyone an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. He goes on down in the last verse after Job has lived 140 years longer after this. Some believe up close to 200 years perhaps in his full life. He saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. When we see the end of Job's story, we're reminded of a verse of something that Job said and Job understood earlier in this book. In chapter 23 and verse 10, Job said, When I am tried, when this is over and done with, I shall come forth as gold. Job understood, and this morning we see in this chapter, Job refined. We have considered Job. God said, have you considered my servant Job? And in this we see Job refined. Do you know the process of the refining of gold? Some of us would just like to get a little more gold. We don't care whether it's refined or not. But the purification of gold is when the impurities in gold, they are invisible to the naked eye. They are invisible from the outside. So the goldsmith must patiently and intentionally take that gold and hold it over the hottest part 
of the flame. He holds it over the hottest part of the fire. And as this takes place, it begins to liquefy the gold. Only then do the imperfections that are hidden deep inside of that gold begin to rise to the surface. There are times in our lives when God will hold us over the hottest part of His flame. He will put us in uncomfortable positions. Some of you this morning may feel like God is holding you into the heat of His flame. But He is doing it, and as that, as that gold and that dross begins to separate and that dross rises to the surface, He begins to skim that dross off. And He'll continue this process until that gold is pure and clear. And the way that He tells, they tell me, is that when He can look at that gold and see his reflection in that gold, he knows that it is pure. You see, that's exactly what God wants to do in our lives. God is purifying the dross. He is purging out the dross so that he can look at us and see the reflection of his glory in us. Paul calls it, says it this way. He says, we are being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the express image of his person, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. He is the expression of God's glory. He is the expression of God's purpose. And as we are purified into his likeness, that dross, that sin, those issues are purified out. A good goldsmith never takes his eye off the fire or the gold. You see, if the heat gets too hot, the heat puts too much heat and too much pressure, it will ruin the gold. But if it's not hot enough, too little heat will, will mar the gold. And so God is a master smith. There's a delicate balance in which he trusts and he uses and he works and he properly handles the gold. I'm glad that my life is in the hands of a master craftsman. I'm glad that I can trust. I'm glad that he puts just the right amount of heat. He knows what by His grace I can stand. And He uses it for my good, not to harm. I like the way that Warren Wearsby worded this. When God puts His people into the furnace, He said, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. That's exactly what God is doing in our lives. He knows how long we need the heat, and He knows how much heat we need, and He is doing it for a purpose. He is doing it for our good. Someone has said that God is not an arsonist. He is a refiner. There's a clear difference. An arsonist uses fire for damage. God uses it for our good. And this is an image that God uses throughout the Old Testament. We see it in multiple places. We see it in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 10, where God says to Israel, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. The heat of affliction, the heat of suffering, is the heat that God uses to purify us and refine us. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 2, God says to Israel again, I will be like a refiner's fire. He does not say that he's like a, a forest fire or the fire of an incinerator. A forest fire burns indiscriminately. An incinerator burns completely, but a refiner's fire burns purposefully. 
And that is what God is doing in our lives. The restoration of Job and his affliction has a twofold explanation. In the beginning, it initially was for the purpose of demonstrating God's value and glory in this world. But the secondary purpose is the ongoing expression of God's glory in Job. We are most delighted and most blessed when we see the expression of God's glory. Whenever God engages man, whenever God engages humanity, whether it's through creation, whether it's through the scriptures and, and the inspiration of scriptures, whether it's through the incarnation of Christ or any other experience of man with God, it is always for God to demonstrate his glory. When God created this earth, it is for the invisible things of God to be clearly seen. And we get the opportunity in the finite and the flawed expressions of beauty in nature. We see it and what happens to it, to us. We are delighted to see it. We are delighted to experience it. While at the same time, we are humbled by its greatness and its beauty. Whenever, God, whenever man experienced God in the scriptures, whether it was Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and he fell on his face and said, woe is me, the great event, the great experience of Isaiah's life was that expression and seeing that glory of God. God doesn't show and manifest his glory simply to show off out of some pompous, egotistical idea. It is for us to have the greatest experience of his glory and the beauty that we were created to both see and reflect. And that's what he's doing in this, in this experience with Job. As we look at this, as he works to refine Job's righteousness... You see, the problem with Job was not that he had an incorrect understanding of God. It was that he had an incomplete understanding of God. And God's purpose is to bring him to that place. I want you to see, first of all, that this was an experience. Job's restoration, his refining, was an experience of the grace of God. We sometimes think of the grace of God as that experience where God gives us the strength that we need to make it through a tough time. And God's grace is experienced in this, and that is certainly true. But God's grace is also an action that is purifying and sanctifying us to make us like Christ. Do you see God's work in this? Everything that was transpiring in Job's life was a work of God's grace. Now, some of it was uncomfortable. Some of it was painful. Some of it was discouraging. But it was God's work, whether it was the things that were taking place at the beginning of the book. Look, look at the verbs and the, the actions that God has attributed here in chapter 42. Look in verse 11. When they came, his friends came to encourage him. They comforted him over all the evil, not sinful evil, not moral evil, but eventful evil that the Lord had brought upon him. The Lord afflicted Job. There's no way around this to understand except we say, yes, Satan was the one that did it, but it was the Lord who afflicted Job. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And it is a common thread in Scripture that what Satan does, and he thinks he's accomplishing his purpose, and he thinks he's doing his work, he is really nothing more than a tool in the hand of God to accomplish his work. When Satan thought he had conquered Christ at the cross, that was not a victory for Satan. That was Satan's greatest defeat. And it was God who was winning the victory. It was God who was accomplishing salvation. Job's brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And in the book of Job, 
Satan thinks he's accomplishing his purpose to touch God's most prized servant. And yet God is allowing this to take place and God is bringing this affliction. It's a work of God in our lives. But then we see that God accepted Job in verse 9. At the end of the verse, the Lord accepted Job. In, chapter, in verse 10, here's a phrase I'm loving. The Lord turned the captivity of Job. That reminds me of how many times God turns the captivity of his people. Some of you this morning, you are praying and need to experience the Lord to turn your, his, your captivity. And I don't know when that time will come, but your restoration will come. Your refining will come, but it will come in God's time and by his grace. And it is a work of his grace. As long as he keeps his eye on the clock, he will leave you in that heat. But he is doing it for your refinement so that you may better experience his glory and know his beauty. Verse 10 also says that the Lord gave Job. I want to pause just a minute and comment on this because it says the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. If you do the math from this chapter to chapter 1, you'll see that of all the animals that God gave, that Job lost, God gave him twice as many animals, twice as many camels, twice as many donkeys, twice as many all these other animals. But when you come to his children, God gave him seven sons, the same number of sons that he had before. Three daughters, the same number of daughters that he had before. Why did God not give him double? God did not give him double because Job never lost his children. And I want to remind you, those of you especially that have lost people to death in the past days, you've not really lost them. We sometimes say, I'm sorry for your loss. But if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they are not lost. And you experience, we understand you experience the grief and the pain. But you cannot lose that which is eternal. And Job still had seven sons and three daughters. And so God doubled what he had because he had never lost them to start with. But he gave to Job. You see the grace of God in this? Look in verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. The Lord blessed. This is all the work of God's grace. All his work in his time and all of grace. Can I say to us this morning, this is not compensation for Job's suffering. God owes us nothing. I'm going to say that one more time. God owes us nothing. Everything that we have is simply His grace. So let's avoid this idea as we look at this to somehow think, well, God is paying Job back because he put him through all this suffering. He's going to compensate him for this. There's no indication in this passage when you study it out. There's no indication that this is God rewarding or paying Job back some kind of compensation for his suffering. This is all nothing but unadulterated, pure, refined grace that Job experiences. And the danger is if we're not careful that we will look at our lives and we will examine and we'll, we'll measure out the suffering we've been through and we'll think to ourselves, I sure expect God to bless me for having gone through this. But God doesn't owe us anything. Everything that we have is nothing but His grace extended to us. And aren't you glad for God's grace? I'm glad above all for the grace of God that came in salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. All of his work is grace. 
It's not only an experience of God's grace, it's an experience of God's love. You see, and this is key, listen to me carefully. This work in Job's life is an expression of God's love for Job. He is a loving father who is doing this. He is the one that is at work in Job and in his life and in his experience. God values the reality of our relationship to him above all else. God values the the reality of our relationship to him above our perceived comfort or convenience. We look at our lives and we look at the blessings that God gives to us. And Job maybe looked at the things that God had allowed him to have. And he says, this is God's love for me. This is God's blessing. But does God still love me when he takes it away? Does God still love me? And the love of God says, there is something that is of greater value to me. And there is something that is of greater value to you than having possessions and having blessings. And that is knowing me. That is experiencing me, knowing my person, knowing my glory. And God does this because he loves Job. It's hard sometimes for us to understand this, but perhaps a way to frame this is when parents have to do things that are uncomfortable or sometimes even painful for their child, but the desired accomplished effect is of far greater value than the temporary pain or experience that they go through. I remember this often from my childhood, and by often I mean often, often, often. My mom or my dad, both of them, I think they just took turns. Who's going to whip him today? Would call me in and I knew something was up. Sometimes I knew what I had done. Sometimes I just assumed they knew something that I had done that they'd forgotten and remembered. Who knows? And my dad would always say to me, what maybe some of your parents said to you, son, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. Y'all may not know this about me, but I've got a little bit, a whole lot. Is that better? Yeah. Glenn's like, uh, yeah, now, a smart aleck in me. And I often wanted to say to my dad, although I was also wise enough not to say it out loud, I tell you what, let me whip you and we'll find out. (laughs) But God gave me a little bit of sense to balance out this smart aleck. My dad understood, my mom understood that it was better for me to experience some minor pain in discipline and learn right from wrong than later experience much more severe pain. Boy, we're seeing that in our world today. A parent may have to take their child, and they may have to take them to the doctor and get a shot, or, my boy, when I was a child, I hated, if there's anything I hated worse than getting whipped and the pain that it apparently brought my dad, uh, I hated needles. Let me back up and say that As an adult, I still hate needles. My mom and dad would take me to the doctor and they would promise me a a lollipop. You can get a dum-dum. I thought, boy, that is accurately named. (laughs) There's not enough dum-dums in the world to let this dum-dum get a shot. 
What was the point of the pain that I would feel? And I'm sure the pain was probably more in my mind than it actually was in my body. But what was the point of it? They knew that there was something better that came of it. There was some good that they wanted me to experience. There's something far better than a medicine. There's something far better than discipline that God wants, and that is His love for us, and He wants something that is of far greater value than any blessings He may give or take away, far greater than any comfort, far greater than any convenience, and that is for us to know Him. He sent His Son to the cross to die for us so that we could enter into that relationship with Him. This is an experience of God's love. It's an experience of the presence and the person of knowing God. Do we know Him? Do we know about Him? Or do we really, really know Him? You see, God uses affliction to teach us. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. You see, there's some right and wrong that God wants us to learn, and that may be what he's teaching through affliction. It may be that God is keeping us from sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, Lest I should be exalted above measure, lest pride should find a foothold in my heart and my life, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So there are times that God is teaching through affliction. But God is not merely trying to inform our intellect. The most important thing He wants us to know in our affliction is to know Him. Do you see it back in verse 5? This is the key to the entire book of Job. If you want to understand what's taking place, this is what God is doing. He's moving him at the beginning of the story from verse 5, uh, verse, the first part of verse 5, to at the end of the story, the end of verse 5. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Job says, I knew about you. I knew some truth about you. At the beginning of the story, the beginning of the account in Job 1, nobody around like Job. Nobody more righteous than Job. What Job had heard about God, absolutely true. The problem was not incorrect understanding of God, incorrect theology. It was inadequate knowledge of God. At the end of the story, he says, Now my eye sees you. You see, it's not just the experience that he got, to, he got to see God. He says, right now, I am in your presence. I see you. I have heard about you. I knew about you. Now I know you. That's what God wants to teach us. That is what God values above all of our comfort, above all of our convenience, more important and more valuable and more beautiful and more wonderful and more glorious is to experience the glorious presence of God and to be in His presence, to see Him with our eyes and to know Him. That is God's purpose. Don't let your affliction calls you to miss what God is doing. You see, the greatest tragedy would not be for God to leave you in your affliction. The greatest tragedy of all would for, be for you to miss in your affliction, in your suffering, the great good that God has for you in it. For you to miss God 
Can you imagine if Job had gone through 41 chapters of this and got to the end and not able to say, now I see you with my eyes? For him to miss what God has. Our prayer ought to be, God, don't let me in my suffering, in my affliction, please don't let me miss you. But can I pause there a minute and say something else? The God of the valleys is the God of the mountains. And the God that is at work in Job's life and the sufferings is at work in his life when he's not suffering. So I would say to those many of us who are not going through affliction and suffering, don't miss what God is doing in your life. You see, I need God as much on my good days as I do on my bad days. I need God every day. So don't think that this truth from Job is just for those who are facing great physical trials, those who are going through deep relationship issues, those who are going through disturbing emotional situations. This is for every single one of us. And our prayer ought to be, God, please don't let me miss you today. Please don't let me miss what you are doing in my life. Because we may get out of what God is doing in our lives, but that would be a tragedy. What we need to pray for is for me to get out of what God is doing, what God is doing. To know Him. I want to close with a question for you this morning because this boils this down. There are those who know about God and those who know God. How many of y'all remember, and I'm, I'm assuming they still have these. I don't know, I haven't looked at children's activity books in quite a while. Um, I tend to, you know, read a little different books than that. Um, although sometimes children's literature is right on spot for me. That's about where I am. Remember the activity books? They used to have the dot to dot. Do they still have those? Do those still exist? Some of y'all don't have a clue. Y'all don't know any more than I do. But you remember, you know what I'm talking about. They used them as teaching tools because it would go from A to B to C to D or one to two or three, or if you got those from the dollar store, sometimes they get them mixed up and it'd be A, B, three, those cheapy ones that we used to use. And the idea was is that when you got to the end, there was a, a vague picture there. And you could generally tell what it was, unless you were like me and your lines were not really straight. And you could, you could see it was a semblance of a picture. It looked like, but it was not a... It's not the real thing. It was not the full picture. I'm afraid that there are many Christians who are simply dot-to-dot -dot Christians. They get up in the morning and they do the first thing. They read their Bible and they pray. And that's wonderful. All of us ought to do that. And then they move to the next thing and they go to church. And they go to the next dot and they sing the songs, and they go to the next dot, and they put in the offering, and they go to the next dot, and they go to Sunday school, and they, they just go from dot to dot. They go through the routine. They go through the motions. They go through it. And when they get all the way through their day or through their week, they've gone from this to this to this, and they've, they've checked all the boxes. They've done everything. And you get to the end, and it looks vaguely like the semblance of what a Christian ought to look like. But it's not a real picture. That's the person who just simply, I've heard about you with my ear. I know about you, God. But God wants something more for us. Not from us, but for us. 
God wants us to know Him. He wants it to be a true portrait. He wants it to be the full expression of His glory. He doesn't want us to be a dot-to-dot Christian. He wants us to be a portrait Christian, one painted by a master artist, one who has accomplished what it really and truly looks like to be a follower of Christ. Is your relationship with God a high priority in your life? Are you getting out of your life everything that God has for you in it, what God is doing in your life? Boy, our prayer ought to be. And I know that some of you are going through great trials and struggles, and some, some you know about and some others don't know about, and there's, there's a whole host of issues that we could talk about this morning. But whatever is going on in your life, our prayer ought to be, God, please don't let me miss you and what's taking place in my life. I don't want to miss you. I don't want to get to the end of this and simply no more facts about you. I want to come through this. I want to experience this. God, don't let me miss you. I want to see you with my eyes. May that be our heart's cry and our prayer this morning so that when we get to the end of our affliction and we get to the end of our suffering, we can say, I had heard about you, but now, God, I've moved I see you with my eyes. Will you bow with me for prayer? The greatest tragedy would be to miss what God has for me in my affliction, in my suffering. Don't miss. Don't miss. Maybe this morning, boy, maybe you've sort of got into that mindset of just going through the motions and you're just moving from one dot to the next, maybe you come need to get on this altar and say, God, I want to be a full reflection of your glory. Help me. Help me not drift into that. Maybe this morning you need to get on your knees and you need to say, God, don't let me miss what you're doing. Don't let me miss what you have for me in this.